You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Zechariah. If you are uh, visiting with us, you can, um, you can find this printed on page 9 of your worship guide. If you're not a Christian, you don't have a Bible, um, we would love for you to grab one of those pew Bibles and take them home with you. We'd just love for you to have access to God's Word in your own home. If, um, if you don't regularly bring your Bible and just sort of rely on us to, um, to print the text, that's fine. Uh, we don't mind that, but I would encourage you that as we are studying the book of Zechariah, there are going to be times when we're just working our way through big chunks. Um, we're not going to be able to print those, all those chunks. And so I would encourage you to, to bring your Bible because we will be referring to things that are outside of the worship guide at times. Today we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 1, starting with verse 7 and reading through verse 17. This is God's Word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, The angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly zealous, jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask his blessing on his word preached. Lord, as we come to your word, we are asking that you would return to us with power and once again make our hearts overflow with praise to the Lord Jesus. So we need your spirit to bring us out of coldness and apathy, to bring us out of our weariness through suffering, to bring us out of hopelessness and despair into the hope that is found in Christ. And so, Lord Jesus, may we hear your voice through your word, by your spirit, we pray. Amen. 
Well, I have, I have good news for you. Maybe it's bad news. Jesus meets his people usually in disorienting discouragement. So you take that home with you and put it on your refrigerator. And this is what happens when he shows up in the gospel. So he, he finds a man who can't walk. He's just so helpless that no one will even help him into the water where he hopes he might find help. He's just disoriented with discouragement. That's where Jesus finds him. A, a widow who's lost her husband and then her son and now is destitute. That's where Jesus in compassion notices her and moves towards her. Oftentimes when someone begins to follow Jesus, the thing that they're surprised by is that suffering is part of the Christian life. And that this is where Jesus continues to meet his people in disorienting discouragement. And we get that the world's difficult, but Jesus has overcome the world. He's the true king who is reigning after defeating the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. Been raised from the dead, victorious, seated on his throne, governing all the nations. And, and he's overcome the world. He's brought us into a peace and a relationship with God. And, and so we think things should go well for us. He's even said that, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, and, and yet, and the truth is when I focus on those promises, it does bring peace and joy into my life but there's so much wrong with the world and then there's so much wrong with me that it's so easy to fall back into discouraging disorientation but that's where we find that Jesus is going to meet us there's so much wrong with the world I mean on almost every continent except North America there's a major conflict occurring right now just in the last decade over half a million people were killed in the Syrian civil war it's estimated that today more Christians are killed for following Jesus than at any other time in the history of the church. The estimate runs like this. About once every six minutes, a follower of Jesus is killed because they are a follower of Jesus. Our world is so fragile that your retirement account took a hit this week, a major hit this week, because of some virus broke out in a place in China that you had never heard of until a few weeks ago. And all of this is so disorienting. And so disorienting because largely the problems of my life are so disorienting that when I look out and see the brokenness and the fragility of the world, I just get more disoriented as a result and when we get disoriented, we get discouraged because we fall back into our default mode. I've got to fix this. And I can't. I've got to find my own solutions. I've got to provide my own resources. I've got to go after that. Because asking who will help me runs the risk that the answer will come from silence. There's no one there. And we get disoriented in our discouragement. But disorienting discouragement is where Jesus meets us in their most powerful ways as the God who fights for his people. See, this is where Israel finds itself in the book of Zechariah, even though 
God had promised a new day after the exile, after the 70 years referred to here in this vision. God had promised restoration, and they're hearing in that that we're going to return to flourishing again. The temple had begun to be rebuilt quickly after they had returned from exile, but then as they faced opposition, the temple rebuilding died out. It just started back again just a couple years before this vision in Zechariah 1. And the people of God are, are given this message in the midst of this sort of what's going on in the world around us. God says to them in the book of Zechariah and in this vision, look, let me pull the curtain back. You are part of a story that I'm writing in this world. A story that comes to its climax with salvation through judgment. I'm going to put the world right again. And in all of history, is, you might not see it, but this is where we're going. This is where I am taking things. And in Zechariah 1 through 6, Zechariah is given a series of night visions, perhaps dreams. There's eight of them all together. And, and to understand sort of what God is doing, this is what's called apocalyptic literature. Now, some of you might hear that and think, you know, end times vision uh, of some great and, and glorious thing that's happening in the future. And, and that's somewhat true, but apocalyptic literature just simply means unveiling, making what's hidden visible. Think of in The Wizard of Oz when... You've got all these things going on, and then Toto pulls back the curtain of the wizard, and you see what's really going on behind the scenes. And in that situation, what's going on behind the scenes is quite tame and shouldn't be feared. But when God pulls back the vision and the curtain in these series of visions and illumines what's hidden, we see a really different story. A God who is on the move and a God who should be feared, who's moving everything to the climactic point of salvation and judgment. Now here's how we're going to look at these, these series of visions, these eight visions um, in Zechariah chapters 1 through 6. We're going, to, we're going to treat them as if they form a climactic point in visions 4 and 5. And so we're going to group them together, the first vision and the eighth vision today. And then the second and the seventh vision, the next Sunday and the third and the sixth until we just focus on four separately and the fifth vision separately. In Hebrew, this is called a chiasm from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. Think about an X. It comes, starts broadly and comes to a point and then moves back out. That's sort of how these visions are framed until they come to the main point. And the main point that God is communicating through these visions is that there is a hidden reality that he is ordering that affects everything. Like sometimes, you know, you need to know the plot before you, of a movie before you go see it. Just tell me what it is, especially if it's a really complex storyline in that movie. You're like, at least I want to know what's happening before I watch it because I don't keep up really well with complex storylines. So tell me, what's really going on so then I can follow the details. Well, the plot that here is that God is going to be victorious over all of Israel's enemies and take them to a place of flourishing. And we see that at the end of this first vision, that the, the city of Jerusalem is going to 
flourish again and, and people are going to be there and you're going to be able to stretch out a measuring line and, and my cities will overflow with prosperity and the Lord again will comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. He's going to return to his people. And so Zechariah has this series of visions and in verse 8 we find that they come at night. Now here's, this, here's I think uh, the helpful structure of this. Uh, the reason they're coming at night is because the end of the vision is going to be the dawning of a new day. And so God's coming into the darkness of their experience and saying, this isn't the ultimate. I'm taking this somewhere. And we'll see at the last vision, the beginning, begins with the dawn of a new day. And God's pulling back the veil and saying, look, I am involved in the history of the world, and that is a little bit frightening. It should scare us. It should cause us to pause that the fierceness of the fragility of the world is being tended to by the Lord of all creation. This is why Thomas read from Romans 13, obey the rulers because they are the ministers of God. Whoever is there has been put there by God who is ordering the affairs of the nations. He says in Job 12, this he makes nations great and destroys them he enlarges nations and leads them away and these two visions the first and the eighth in Zechariah 1 and 6 are telling us this story that God is involved in a larger conflict that is being played out in the rise and fall of the nations of the world and he's going to win. But to understand the nature of this conflict, you really have to go all the way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3. God created the world good. Genesis 1 and 2, it's a flourishing, beautiful place. He puts mankind in the garden. They're doing well. The Lord is present there. This is his kingdom garden, but Adam sins against the Lord. He overthrows his rule. He rebels against him, and God curses him but God those 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 words that are at the heart always at the heart of the gospel God won't let sin and Satan reign over his good creation so he makes a promise there's going to conflict that's going to play out in this world between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman my chosen and beloved people will win because I am on their side I fight their battles. Sin and Satan won't win, but this conflict is going to play out. It's going to come to a climax that God's going to crush the head of Satan and his evil intentions. And this is what is unveiled in these visions because the people of God are asking this question. If that's true, why is Babylon at rest? Why is the evil nation at rest while we're floundering here oppressed by them. It's a pretty dense passage that can get fairly confusing. Basically, it's a conversation. This first vision, starting with verse 7, is a conversation between four people. Zechariah the prophet, an angel that serves as an interpreting angel. Zechariah is so confused. He's like, what are these? What's going on? I don't understand. So he interprets for him. The angel talked with him, verses 
2, 13, and 14. He interprets for them. Thirdly, this, the, the angel of the Lord. And you'll notice that the Lord is called the Lord of hosts a number of times. When we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, we sang these words, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Sabaoth is Hebrew for the Lord of hosts, and the hosts are armies. This is a God who fights for his people, who has armies at his disposal. And the angel of the Lord is the head of the army. And so Zechariah sees a vision of a man riding on a red horse. That's the angel of the Lord. He's mounted. On a red horse and he's standing with different colored horses. Sorrel and red and white horses. Just think, just think in our normal colors. You know, light reddish brown, dark brown, white. They're just normal colored horses. And they're, they're there with the angels of God um, seated on them. And we'll see um, these, these single horses grow in Zechariah chapter 6. And so the angel of the Lord is on the red horse. And most likely out in the desert, hiding behind in a thicket of myrtles. Think of shrub, an evergreen shrub. They're, they're hiding out in the desert because here's what's going on. These are functioning as patrol horses. This is how Persia kept control of the vastness of their empire, which extended eastward and westward uh, well past Iran and all the way over to Greece. South covering Egypt, north up to the mountains. Just a vast empire. And how do you keep control of a vast empire? You send out spies who patrol the earth and make sure they report back to the king all that's going on. And this is what God is doing. He says, look, Persia does that. But they're not ultimately the ones in control. I am the ones who are in control of history. And my, my patrols are going out through the end of the earth. And they go out and they patrol and they report back. The world is at rest. It's resting quietly. It's not a good report for Israel. It provokes the angel of the Lord to cry out in verse 10, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on your people? The people that you love, you discipline for these 70 years, it's over. How long will this go on? This is a flipping of the proper order of the world where the nations of the world are at rest, but the people of God are oppressed. And they're, they're asking, how long? What's going on? What are the lives? Why are lives like this? They should be so much better off. Where, where are you? you? Seems so absent. This is not what the story of your promises is telling me should be my experience. How Long will this continue to go on? The evil will triumph. Some of you are asking that in your own life. How long will this? How long will I struggle with this sin for? For the rest of my, it just seems to triumph. I can get no control over it. Or it's the it's the sin of others that have invaded your life and wrecked it. How long, O oh Lord? How long until you return and put things right again? And what I want us to see from the remainder of this vision as well as the vision in 
chapter 6 is that the Lord has three responses to this question. The first is an awareness. The second is compassionate words. And then the third is this anticlimactic outcome of victory. So first, the Lord's awareness. It appears at the surface of things in their experience that he's absent. But when he's sending, he pulls back the vision and says, look at I'm, I'm quite aware of the situation. Here's how I know I've got patrol horses that are patrolling all around. It's, it's not as if he really has patrol horses that we don't see. He's making the point, I know, I'm not blind to any of these things. David asked the question, if I rise to heaven, you're there. If I go down into the grave, you're there. No matter where I go, you're there. And God's saying, I am all places at all times, but I particularly notice the needs of my people. You can't slip from my eyes. I'm completely and utterly aware of what you are experiencing today. And his response to that awareness is his compassionate words. Look at verse 13. Look at how tender the Lord's response is through the angel who spoke to him. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Now, again, remember, Israel is coming to the end of 70 years of the Lord's discipline where he says, I've been angry with you because you sinned. You were, you were killing your children and sacrificed to other gods. You had completely abandoned me. But he speak, continues to speak gracious and compassionate words. And this is what he says, cry out. Don't be quiet about this. Cry out, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, I am exceedingly jealous, not just a little, not just slightly, cry out, tell everyone how I am disposed towards those who are my people. I am exceedingly jealous for them. Think of a husband who's seen his wife that he loves go off with another man and him saying, no, that is my beloved. I have a love for her that exceeds her betrayal of me. I'm so exceedingly jealous for her that I will work to restore her back into proper relationship with me and cry out. Verse 15, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. They may be at ease. You may be in conflict. That does not mean that that is the Lord's disposition towards you. Don't base it based on your circumstances, but based on his promise to you in Christ. In other words, I have an exceedingly jealous love for my beloved people, and I am so committed to their flourishing that the backdrop of what they experience, the discipline of the exile, their experience of judgment has a different backdrop than the nations are experiencing. Those who are opposed to Christ and his rule ultimately are going to see their outcome and their destruction through judgment. And notice that the ground of that different disposition, he's against those who oppose him. He's for those who are in Christ. That is not the basis of that disposition of the Lord for his people. Is not based on 
the faithfulness of his people, but the faithfulness of the Lord to his promises. As, as one of the ancient fathers said, I just love it, there is, there is more of a desire in God to forgive than there is a desire in you to sin. Therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 16, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Interestingly, a measuring line was used in earlier prophets to, to measure Jerusalem and see that Israel had failed in obeying God's command. He measured them and found them lacking. But now the measuring line is pulled out because the Lord is going to restore his people to flourishing despite their sin. And then the Lord's out of the Lord's gracious, comforting disposition for his people. That's good news. Man, that's tremendously good news. I can bank on that. But look, if there was not power behind that, those would be empty words. I mean, if, if I'm in the midst of suffering and you come to me and say, and say to me, um, I'm so sorry, that's a general comfort. But if you say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to do something about that. Oh, now there's hope. And so now I'll turn to, to chapter 6. It's just... Chapter 6, it's a parallel vision these single horses that were on covert missions doing reconnaissance for the Lord, now, in verse 1, become four chariots that come out from between the mountains, and they were mountains of bronze, most likely bronze because dawn is breaking, the, the morning sun has turned these mountains into, a, this is not the night that it was before, but dawn a new day is coming and in the ancient world chariots were like tanks were in world war ii they were the battle the the top of the line battle gear of the day nothing could stand against if you had chariots you won your your battles and the mountains were bronze and the first chariot had red horses and the second black horses and the third white horses and fourth chariot dappled horses all of them strong and the Lord said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariots of black horses go to the north. The white ones go after them to the north. Then the dappled ones go down to the south. Babylon and Persia were to the north. Israel had another fierce enemy that constantly threatened them. Egypt to the south. Two going to the reigning power, one going to the lesser power, one staying behind, most likely as a defense mechanism for Israel. God was not going to leave his people alone. He's going out to defeat his enemies. And the strong horses came out, and they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go and patrol the earth. And so they patrolled the earth. And this tension is building all the way up to Verse 7, the Lord's finally going to bring victory to his people. And you're, and you're expecting this great and fierce battle. Think of every war movie that you've ever seen. One great power against another. Going to battle and it's chaotic and there's bloodshed everywhere. 
The nations, we're expecting the nations to retaliate against God's people. But that's not at all what happens. Verse 8. It's very anticlimactic. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go to the north country return and have set my spirit at rest in the north country. That's it. God wins. The fierceness of Babylon, the fierceness of Persia that conquered Babylon, conquered nation against nation against nation. No one could stand against them. They are no match for the Lord who fights for his people. He sends them to the north. He says, put my spirit there. He's at rest. It's going to be okay. And this is what he's saying. Now you're in the know. Now you know where this is all going. I'm going to judge the nations of the earth and all those who are rebelling against me. And they will be no match. That's the hidden story that is now revealed. And that is not just a future reality. The future reality where Jesus returns is grounded in the past reality where this story came to its climax, where Rome, the greatest power on the face of the earth, put the Son of God to death on a cross. And Jesus won anticlimactically as he rose from the grave. And as we saw last week, the the message of Zechariah that we'll hear over and over again is not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Where sin and Satan and your own brokenness and your crimes against God that put you on the wrong side of history not by power, but by my might, but by my spirit laid on Jesus, who rose from the dead. And there's going to be a day when Jesus returns. He's taking all of history to this climactic point. He's reigning in heaven right now. He's ordering the nations. I mean, you hear just some of this is like, who is in control of the next election? It ain't Super Tuesday. It's the Lord Jesus. And he's taking all of history to a climax where he will return and all will stand before him. And if you have stood against him, you will stand before him and give an account. But if you throw yourself at his feet... He'll take that day of judgment and take it from the future and put it in your past. I died for that sin. The wrath of God was poured out for me. And then he has kind and compassionate words. It's better to be found in Christ because that moves me from being in the category that God is warring against me to being in the category that God is fighting for me. And you see, that's why we come to this table. 
David says something very profound in Psalm 23. He says, it's a conflict psalm. But he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's a profound hope. In the midst of conflict and strife, there is a party going on. A feast, a table of rest that the Lord has set for his people. And you see, the sheer beauty of this table is that it's set for us by another. We just have to show up with our neediness. I can't fight anymore. I don't want to fight against you, Lord. I can't fight for myself anymore. I can't defeat any of the enemies in my life. You've got to be my battle warrior. So I'm just coming to this table because you're the Lord who defends and protects and causes his people to flourish. But it also reminds us that this is a temporary table because it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. A pilgrim meal, so we eat by faith, awaiting the Lord Jesus' final victory, and God is pulling us there. You see, there's another apocalyptus in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, another unveiling. God's pulling history back. He says, let me show you what's going on really behind the scenes. This is the most ultimate reality that's, expe- that's, that's affecting what you see. Revelation 19.1. After I heard this, I seemed to be a loud voice again. Another loud voice crying out. This time it's God's people crying out. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute here symbolizing the evil corruption of the world who corrupted the earth with their immorality and his adventure on her blood of his servants and then a conflict arises and then again it's a very anticlimactic conflict God wins spoiler alert and then we hear this Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out. These are the people who are in Christ. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride made herself ready for it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Notice that these are people who come, as we'll see in Zechariah 4, have come and they're just filthy like us. But here they've become radiant. It was granted her, that's passive, it was done for her, clothed herself with fine linen and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God is so powerful and victorious that he's causing his people to flourish. And you see what this table tells us. Just as Jesus took your wrath on the cross, if you're not in Christ, the reigning king can conquer your heart and put his spirit at rest in you, which is just a foretaste of the day when he will conquer all of the evil of the world and put his spirit at rest once and for all and when I can focus on those promises they bring peace and joy in the midst of disorienting discouragement let's pray
Lord, as we come to your table, we need you. We need you to meet with us and encourage us and strengthen us and help us. You need to fight our battles for us. You need to, we need to taste your victory again in our lives. And so bring us to the foot of the cross that we might see Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we pray this in his name. Amen.